According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Philippians chapter 1. We are wrapping up the details in verse 6 and getting ready to verses 7 and 8, which I know everyone's on the edge of their seat waiting to get to because then we'll get to get in touch with our feelings, as it says. It is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. That's verse 7. And God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So we've got a couple of touchy-feely verses there that we need to identify with and understand. And, and some of it, of course, I get a little snarky with, tongue-in-cheek. But there's actually critical principles to be found there that demonstrate what's in the driver's seat. Is it our thinking or is it our emotions? And what happens when we swap drivers? What happens if we put the emotions in the driver's seat and if it's our emotions that change our thinking? when it's supposed to be our thinking that shapes our emotions. And so the, the order on that is huge. And so if we can have a, just a little bit of snark and a lot of fun and relax about it, we can learn uh, what, the, what the Word of God is really telling us related to these things. Because Philippians is the book of thinking. And again and again and again it tells us how to think and what's expected of us in our thinking. For this morning, though, we're still dealing with the persuasion and the perfection, and then we have to deal with the expression, the day of Christ Jesus, from verse 6. It comes back again in verse 10 as the day of Christ, uh, in a shorter form, but the same day, the day of Christ Jesus. And we need to recognize that for what it is and appreciate our blessings and our position that we have as a part of the body of Christ. So before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our study, to set aside our distractions, to equip us through His eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you th- Your throne of grace this morning, thankful for Your faithfulness, thankful for the living and abiding Word of God, for the stability that Your truth provides. We're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Father, we are grounded, rooted and grounded in the truth, and I thank you for that. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are dedicated to studying, to show themselves approved before God's face, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So bless our study this morning, open the eyes of our understanding, transform us into that image of Christ. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so looking at it here in uh, his Thanksgiving prayer, and it's a Thanksgiving prayer all the way back to verse 3 that's about to give way to ongoing intercessions. And uh, by the time we get to verse 9, we're going to see that Paul takes the Thanksgiving into the present and into the future, thankful for what it is that he expects the Father's going to provide for the Philippians uh, moving forward. But he starts that transition here in verse 6. I am persuaded of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So even there, he's already starting that pivot. He's already starting that shift in his viewpoint from the past to the present and to the future, looking forward with a tremendous confidence that there's neat things in front of him, that there is tremendous blessing in front of them in in their growth and in the transformation and in the outworking of their faith. And he's confident of that. He's persuaded that that's going to happen in, uh, in this. And then he says it is only right, it is only just. And we have all the doctrine related to righteousness and justice that comes in to the, uh, the concept here. It is just 
for me to think this way about you all. And uh, there's, again, there's more background that comes to the present that looks to the future. And uh, that gets expanded in verse 7 as well. So as far as uh, our slides go, we are looking at which one? We looked at that one for a couple of weeks, de- detailing the confident persuasion. We moved on to this one, where we've been now for about a week and a half, dealing with perfection. A beginning is not a perfection, and we should not be complacent or content with a good start. A good start is a good start. Be happy for it, but forget about it and move on. Build on that good start. And uh, understand that God did not save us for the sake of the beginning, but He saved us for the sake of the ending, the perfection, the completion of why it is that He laid hold of us and all the uh, applications there. So we've talked about telos. Telos, you recall, was the noun that refers to the end. And uh, all those passages there that I think uh, each one is, is pretty convicting. But if the end of all things is near, we should be of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And the, the sense of this, when you recognize this in the plan of God, it sparks our diligence. We realize there's no time for complacency. There's a cognate adjective of teleos that speaks of being perfect uh, or being perfected or being mature. That's forgetting, the attitude, uh, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's that attitude. The only perfect attitude is the, is the attitude that says, I'm not perfect yet. <laughs> all right but as many as are perfect well what does that mean if none of us are perfect but some of us are how, how do we these almost seem contradictory not at all with the recognition that we are being perfected that this is the process the father is taking us through and we don't ever uh get prideful or arrogant to say that we've arrived that we're there and uh and uh, that we've learned enough and now we can just simply retire on active duty and uh, get ready to go to heaven and, and not do much between now and then. No, every day is a day for diligence in uh, glorifying Jesus Christ. We talk, uh, talked about the verb teleo and the compound verb, or the, the two verbs here, teleo and teleao. These are the root verbs behind our, our word study today of epiteleao that we're looking at. And we got through this slide. In fact, we got through almost all this slide on Wednesday night. We Ran out of time before we could grab the ones in First John. So now we can uh, gain new ground. I believe we covered everything there is to cover in Hebrews. Did we not? Just in case, I'll take a quick stop in Hebrews on my way. But I think we did. Hebrews 11.40, Hebrews 12.23. We touched on both of those. All right. Yes. This is uh, our blessing in heaven. I love this in Hebrews 12, that you have come. We, we have not come to a mountain that can be touched, <laughs> okay? Our kingdom is invisible. It's spiritual. It's in the heavenly places. It's not about the earthly rituals and, the, and uh, what Israel dealt with in their stewardship. To a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. That's uh, Hebrews 12, 18. That's what Israel stood before when they stood at the base of Mount Sinai and they trembled and they sent Moses up there all by his lonesome. All right, that's not us, okay? Christianity is not designed for any believer to be all by his lonesome anywhere. We're all a body in Christ. And so we did not come to this mountain, that is the the mountain of fear. Uh, Verse 19 says, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, okay? No more, no more, we don't want to hear this. 
you go talk to God, then come back and tell us what he said. Okay? That was Israel and their stewardship. That's not us. We hear directly from God, face to face. We have the face to face revelation in the Old and New Testament, and that's our reality in the church age. Verse 20, they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So that's where they went. Where do we go? What's our mountain? Verse uh, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To the spirits of the righteous teleao, made perfect. And to Jesus, best of all, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, that's in that order for a reason. You could almost end it with verse 23, uh, God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and that's a perfectly acceptable statement. And that's the reality for you and I in the church age. And that's the doctrine we need to sustain us presently in our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ for the church age. But the passage doesn't stop there. It adds the additional item here in verse 24. And this is going to be a significant doctrine for the tribulational martyrs, for, this, for the saints uh, in the tribulation that are looking forward to the coming kingdom that you have Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Remember in the tribulation, they're on the verge of bringing that new covenant in when the kingdom arrives. The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood that must be applied to the nation of Israel in order to bring the Jewish people into their kingdom. And that, uh, that's a whole realm of doctrine right there that we won't get into this morning. But uh, stay tuned because this is coming up here and we just launched our new Hebrew series and I'm eager to, uh, to unfold these things for us as we, uh, as we get there. All right, so 1 John 2, let's wrap up the last of these verses and they all come from 1 John. Aspects of perfection with the verb teleao. 1 John 2 and verse 5. And uh, when we talk about the perfect love that casts out all fear, well, how does this happen? How do I get that love? Where do I buy it? <laughs> okay. Um, well, this is what we have. And this is our priesthood in Christ and the blessings we have. Um, the chapter begins with, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What a provision. Seated at the right hand in full victory. And, and we're in Him. We're seated at His right hand, even as He's seated at the Father's right hand. And so we have that advocate, whoever liveth to make intercession for the saints. All right, That's our priesthood. This is our blessing. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Uh, that is the satisfaction, the mercy seat. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And uh, the blessings we have to have this completed work of Christ, and to have him seated in his session. The session of Christ for the church age is so vital. It, uh, it, it encourages us in all that we do. All right. And, uh, of course, we know him, we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Nominal Christianity that, that makes a claim, but they're not living the Word of God. They're not abiding in the Word of God, and they're not living out the Word of God. 
But whoever keeps his word, verse 5, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. And to me, this is remarkable. This is such a beautiful parallel with Adam, with the Garden of Eden. He was placed in the garden. He was told to keep it, to cultivate the garden and to keep it. What are we told to do? To cultivate the word of God and to keep it. And uh, here we have it. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been teleao, perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And so this adds the subjective experience to our objective reality. And we have the word of God that's, of course, eternal and true. But then we have the subjective experience of the word of God by living it out. We have that assurance, that intimacy with the Father. We're living that word in our daily life. That is what perfects the love of God. All right, so the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. What was the walk of Jesus Christ? It was abiding in the Word of God. It was constantly meditating in the Word of God, praying to Him in the applications there. All right, so that's chapter 2, and then it gets expanded in chapter 4. 1 John 4, verses 12, 17, and 18. And uh, more on agape love. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. That is agapetoi, let us agapao one another. For agape is from God. And everyone who agapaos is born of God and knows God. See, I think by definition, no unbeliever can truly agapao. All right? And uh, whatever love the world defines is not God's love. It doesn't come from His source. And uh, in any event, so the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That is, God is agape. And by this, the love of God was manifested. Isn't that beautiful? God spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways, but when did the word become flesh? Okay, In these last days, he appeared to us in his son. That's when love appeared. And love appeared, love laid down his life, now love is in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we have such power in in these realities. So by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Remember, in Him was life, and that life was the light of man and the blessing there. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so uh, it all hinges on that. The position that we have in Christ is not to earn any of this, it's not to deserve any of this. The fact is, all of this was done up front. When we didn't earn any of it, didn't deserve any of it. But because all of that by grace was was given to us, how now do we respond? And we respond in grace, we respond in gratitude. We're not paying Him back, we're not making it up to Him, we're not uh, applying any kind of recompense to, to somehow retroactively after the fact earn and deserve what we never could earn or deserve. It's all in the appreciation response of grace. So in this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to, how many times do we come across that ought to, right? These are expectations that, are, that arise as a matter of course based on who we are now. We ought to agapao, love one another. No one has seen God at any time. Now here's a verse that has perfection in it. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected 
in us. Remember what uh, Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what we have now in the body of Christ. And the love of God that is Christ is in each one of us. And so we should be abiding in that love. We should be loving one another. We should be identifying with that love one to another. And in so doing, we're seeing Christ and we're seeing the Father. And it helps us. It takes all the the humanity out of things. (laughs) Okay, The Apostle Paul said, uh, we regard no man according to the flesh any longer. And uh, because that humanity gets in the way and it clouds our perspective. And we start to look at somebody, and, at some so-and-so and say, well, that's so-and-so. He, uh, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't deserve uh, my uh, ministry or blessing or grace or love or whatever. And, uh, and so, you know, what's he done for me lately? And, uh, you know, and then all that humanity gets in the way and we start to operate on some basis that's not grace, that's not love. All right, But when we're identifying with the love of God that is Christ in each one of us, when we're loving one another, that's serving Christ. And I'm blessing my brother in Christ not because they deserve it, but because Christ deserves it. Christ uh, is worthy of all of that and more. And if we're truly doing our ministry as unto the Lord, we should realize pretty quickly that we're not ministering well enough. That uh, we need to be more fervent in our service because Christ is certainly more worthy than, than I am fervent. All right, does that make sense? And so we see it there. All right, so by this, His love, His agape is teleaod in us. Verse, um, then we got 13, 14, 15, 16. We get down to verse 17. Um, Verse 16 says, we have come to know and have believed. You see that? You don't just believe nothing. You have to be persuaded. You have to know your, uh, your faith as a response to what you are persuaded of and what you know. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. You know, I mean, at a certain point, you just get bewildered and say, can he? Could he? Would he? Right? That song, can he? Could he? Would he? You know, could he love me? Did he really? And uh, it's, it's, it's a fun song and, and it's so true. Because I think we all reach that point where we just say, you know, I wouldn't have done it. (laughs) Would I give my son to save me? You know, what what would I give? You know, what do I deserve? So we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So this is the abiding that we have. And this is really kind of, it's a a follow-up to what Jesus was praying in John 17. Jesus was asking the Father that this would happen. And now here's John recording, guess what? This is happening. (laughs) It's called the church age. It's called our stewardship in the body of Christ. And so by this, love is perfected with us. And so this is the, the corporate fulfillment of this in the body of Christ. So by this, agape is perfected at Austin Bible Church with us, with a community of saints that are serving one another and abiding in love. And we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. Now wait a minute. As He is, so also are we. What does that mean? Seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted and glorified. Are we viewing ourselves that way? As He is, so also are we? Or do we still get worked up about things in the world as if somehow uh, we're a part of that? 
Then verse 18, no, there is no fear in love. There's no phobos in agape, right? There's no agape phobia. <laughs> there's all kinds of other phobias this world keeps hitting us with, but there's no agape phobia because there's no phobia, no phobos in agape. But teleao agape, perfect love, casts out fear because fear involves punishment. We're past that. We're delivered from that. There's no wrath in that. Jesus Christ accepted every punishment, all the punishment for my sin. Fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is uh, not perfected in love. So this is what we deal with. By the way, this, this sets the table. This is what we deal with in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews calls it rest. And, uh, and, and, and we are so delivered from wrath, we are so delivered from fear, so delivered from judgment that, uh, that we have a rest that is supplied for us. And every one of us should be living in that land flowing with milk and honey all day, every day, attitudinally, as we uh, understand the spiritual reality there. All right, so these are what we're looking at. In all of these, we got telos, teleos. These, uh, these are the, the roots behind epiteleo. Um, teleo, teleao, and of course, epiteleo, the first one we looked at, that's five. And... Uh, that's only five out of the 23 New Testament terms from the telos root. And we're not going to look at the other 18, and some of them are, are not really edifying for us this morning anyway, but it's the recognition that this is a root that has a, a huge uh, panorama, a huge spectrum throughout the New Testament. And I just want to show them to you briefly, and, and then we can move on to, uh, to these next issues centered on the day of Christ. Um, but as we look at it, bring it up here. Here's our epiteleo. I'll make it larger. And in fact, I know a lot of folks love these, and I do too. They're colorful. I'm visual. I like pictures, graphs, charts, colors. Um, but let me just bring up, while I'm here, a, um, a verse, just to show you how to get there, right? So uh, open up a Bible. And if you have the software, you can get there. I know a lot of you are doing this already anyway. Make this larger. Turn off the Greek. There we go. And Philippians 1.6. All right. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Okay? And you see it's highlighted there? Will perfect it. Why is it highlighted right there? It's highlighted right there because I have this epiteleo window open. And as long as I have this epiteleo window open, uh, it's going to have a sympathetic highlighting with, um, with the Bible. Let me put these side by side. Okay? So you'll notice if I close that, that goes away. Okay? And this is just your little Bible helper that's helping you saying, oh, is this what you're studying? Is this what you're looking at? And, uh, and those things there. So um, how do I get that open? Well, I'm going to right-click the word perfect. And this, and even if you don't know Greek, if you don't know anything, you can, you can click, right? Move your mouse over the word perfect or perfect and right-click it. You know, right-click, left-click, right-click it, okay? And, uh, and what you have here, and then I don't mind, I'll take five minutes to do this. Um, you have a, a left column and a right column, okay? Some people don't realize that. And, and, and so until you realize that, there's total confusion until you realize, hey, there's a left column and there's a right column. And uh, when you're using this software, try to be Hebrew, work from right to left, okay? <laughs> so 
uh, I, I clicked on the word perfect, and that's what we have here. Now, it's important in this right-hand column, one of those is currently highlighted, right? And right now it's the top one, perfect, okay? Now, I can change it. I, can, I don't want to select the word perfect. I want to select um, the fuller verb, will perfect. Or I want to select the verse, Philippians 1.6, okay? Now, if you were watching, you would have noticed that as each highlight changes, everything you change here totally changes this left-hand menu, all right? And that's huge, because if you don't, you got, you got some options there, you got, more, you got different options there, 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 okay? And why is this important? Because there is where you most often want to go, okay? Most often, when you want to do a word study, when you want to really dig deeper into the, you're looking for the lemma text. You're not looking for the manuscript text. You're not looking for the English word, okay? We're not all that concerned. I mean, English word perfect. What does perfect mean? Well, I don't know what perfect means, so let's pull it up in a dictionary. Um, but that's an English word, okay? I want to go to epitaleo. I want to learn what epitaleo means. And so rather than leaving this highlighted, which is the selection, I'm going to come down here to highlight the lemma, which is a lemma. All lemma means is vocabulary form, dictionary term, okay? Because um, the actual manuscript is epitelese. Okay, but you don't find epitelese in the dictionary, you find epiteleo in the dictionary. That's the lemma form. So once you select the lemma form, now you have menu options here in the left-hand column. Now you can left-click Bible Word Study. And that brings up your Bible Word Study for epiteleo. All right, see how to do that? See how simple that was? And now that you have it open, you start getting your sympathetic highlighting here in uh, the right-hand window. All right. I'm working with a touchpad that some antichrist designed. All right. We'll let that go. I really should get a mouse. All right. So here's uh, here's Epitaleo. Okay. When you pull up your web your uh, word study guide, it begins with your lemma and your different uh, lexicons that are up here. Your favorite ones will get listed in, in order. And it, it tracks the ones you look at most commonly and moves those up to the top. And the ones, uh, the ones you don't use as frequently, they don't disappear. They just get kind of tucked beneath the, the little more thing there. And they're still there, but uh, you don't look at them as often, so they don't get moved to the top. Uh, the ones that you use all the time get moved to the top. And then uh, here's your translation. Epitaleo is used 10 times in the, in the New Testament, and this color wheel shows you the various times. And the colors are proportional. So that blue on the bottom shows you the three times that uh, it's translated as perfect, perfected, or perfecting. Then uh, two times that it's translated as finish. Uh, twice it's translated as complete or completion, that kind of thing. And every time you select one of those, uh, you, get a, the, you get the listing of verses right below it. So there's the two times there. There's the, uh, the three times there. If you want to look at all of them, you, you can click the center, and it gives you all of them in a descending order of three times, two times, two times, one time. shows you all the uses there. It shows you uh, how it's translated in the Septuagint. Okay, remember the Hebrew Old Testament? Translated into Greek. 
And so, guess what? There's epiteleo uses in the Septuagint. If you do Septuagint studies, that can be useful. Interestingly enough, seven times epiteleo shows up in the Septuagint. Guess what? It translates seven different Hebrew verbs. And so, uh, once each. <laughs> okay? And uh, you can go through that, uh, that color wheel as well if you want to look at those, at those verses. All right. What I want to show you now before we move on is this. This is our telos root right there, okay? And you can see the, uh, see that little symbol, right? Remember square roots? Remember uh, math class? So they use the square root symbol to uh, indicate the root. The root is telos. And uh, you'll note epiteleo is, is the one we're looking at. That's why it's got that little dot right there, that this window is the epiteleo window, Okay? But that is only one out of how many? 23, yeah. And uh, again, here's more. All right. So telos with 40 uses, teleo with 28, teleao with 23, teleos with 19, teluapao with 11. I didn't give you that one. Um, epiteleo, soon telea. Put the soon prefix on there. If you're going to synchronize something, you have the soon prefix, prefix for together with, to, to fit together. You know any verses that talk about being fit together? Okay. Soon telea. Soon teleo. Poluteles. Okay. You got the poly prefix, the mini prefix that goes in front of uh, teles there. Apateleo. Ectaleo. Panteles. Teleotes. Teleosis. But wait, there's more. After teleosis, uh, you got a couple with the alpha privative in front that negates it. Ah, uh, lucitelles, architelones. Wow, architelones. That sounds exciting. Uh, diateleo, lucitelo, holoteles, teleos, an adverb, teleos. Teleotes, tele, uh, telesphoreo, that foreo verb where we have like Christopher and other furrow um, verbs, to bear, to carry. And then uh, telute is the last term there. Anyway, those final half dozen or so or more just have a single use in the New Testament. They're not as common, they're not as frequent. But uh, nevertheless, that's the family of terms we're dealing with, the etymological family that we deal with with the telos root. And if you want to look at all 165 places that root appears, you can, uh, you can certainly do that. With a click it does a search for you and shows you every verse in the New Testament that family shows up. All right, well, there's some fun on that. We do uh, intend to do some Logos training, and I thought maybe we might take Sunday nights to do that, and uh, I've rethought that and changed my mind. So uh, we'll keep doing what we're doing on Sunday nights with our hymn singing and our prayers. Um, But uh, shoot me an email if you want to take part in the Logos training and if we want to put a Saturday together or a couple Saturdays, um, we can uh, certainly do something like that. So let me know. All right. Let's talk about the day of the Lord. And let's talk about the day of Christ. And let's ask ourselves, are we talking about the same thing? <laughs> okay? You know? Because some people want to confuse things. And I like to keep things simple. And um, if, if it's all the same with different names, I'm okay with that. Because, you know... There are the same thing that have different names. There's, you know, there's Yahweh and there's Jesus. 
And I'm cool with Yahweh and Jesus being the same guy, right? I'm cool with, and, and he's got lots of names. He's called El Shaddai. He's called El Elyon. He's called uh, Yahweh Tzedkenu. He's called Jehovah Jireh. I mean, he's got a lot of names. And I'm, I'm fine with a person or a thing or a day or an event having lots of names. But we want to be careful if there are different names at work and they're not the same thing. We want to ask ourselves, are they the same or are they different? Okay? And this comes to, I think it's a fundamental hermeneutical question. It defines uh, how we interpret Scripture, defines how we apply it, defines uh, the scope of everything. Is Israel the church, for example? Uh, is Israel and the church, is it the same thing or different things? And, and that makes a big difference. Is the day of Christ the same thing as the day of the Lord? And, I, and I, I've got some very good Bible dictionaries in my library that a conservative Bible dictionary is written by faithful men, and um, a lot of them get it wrong. Okay, probably about sixty forty or seventy thirty. Uh, some of them say it's all the same thing, and others say, "No, wait a minute, the day of Christ is different than the day of the Lord." Okay, and so uh, you got good men on both sides trying to trying to answer the question. I'm telling you, the day of Christ is not the day of the Lord. Okay. It's not a purely synonymous expression. Now, I will also refine that somewhat for you here this morning to let you know that in some respects you could think of them in an overlapping kind of way because when, when does it happen? It happens after the rapture, <laughs> okay? Or some would even say the day of Christ is the rapture. But um, I think it's, it's more accurate to say it's the judgment seat of Christ that follows the rapture of the church. That the day of Christ is the cleansing of the bride and the glory of receiving the recompense for our service here in the church age. And that's a fundamentally different thing from the day of the Lord, which is a day of wrath, which is uh, God's wrath poured out upon the, the Gentiles in Israel in uh, judgment and in preparation for the coming kingdom. Entirely different things. So, um, but they, they coincide, right? Because at the rapture, where, where do we go? We go to heaven and we experience the day of Christ. We experience the judgment seat of Christ and the wedding supper and our rewards and we get clothed in white and, and uh, all, the, all the great things are happening there in heaven after the rapture. What's happening here on earth? The day of the Lord. Okay, We're going to have wrath poured out. And so because they coincide in, in, in the, the, the sequence of, of time, um, I think that also helps to confuse things for folks that just want to lump it all together into a, into a single thing. Well, remind ourselves, what is the day of the Lord? It, it shouldn't be a difficult study um, because the Old Testament prophets contained repeated references. Okay, Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord God, the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the wrath of the Lord God. It's got a bunch of different names. But the most common is simply Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. And that day is a coming day. It's a day to look forward to, not with fun and excitement, <laughs> with dread, all right? Because that day will not be a pleasant day. Who can endure its coming? And the prophets will ask this again and again and again. And so whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, you know, it's easier to list the prophets that didn't have an extended development of the day of the Lord as opposed to the prophets who did have an extended development of the day of the Lord. And the ones that aren't on that screen, 
They, I bet you anything, they mentioned it in passing. They just didn't have a, a prolonged development of things. Um, and so we just spent a year in Jeremiah and a year in Isaiah. Are we solid on this? Can we move on? <laughs> well, okay, just in case. Isaiah 2. Let's see it with our own eyes. Let's put our finger on it. It's not hard to teach. It only gets complicated when people insist that it uh, doesn't mean what it means and that the church has replaced Israel and so all of this is, is kind of nonsensical now. Okay? And, uh, and they, they totally dismiss the futuristic judgments that are coming to Israel because there's no need for that anymore. The church has replaced Israel. And um, just this week I read a, a lengthy defense of replacement theology that says we don't teach replacement theology um, because they really do, but they said they don't because uh, you can't replace something that was never intended to be in the first place. God never intended for Israel to have an eternal kingdom. And so since he was just teasing the church yet to come and he never intended for the Jews to have an eternal kingdom, we're not replacing them. That's how he could that was a great theological premise to prove that they they did not adhere to replacement theology. Okay. But I mean functionally it's the same thing in terms of uh, it's replacement theology saying that well, we're not replacing because God never intended them to be, to be eternal. Anyway, I think it's a semantic word game and it's sad that it uh, passes as legitimate. <clears throat> All right. Isaiah 2. And, um, you know, if, if God never intended for any of this, then He sure wasted a lot of pages. <laughs> you know? It's kind of interesting. Chapter 2 says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So is this about the church? <laughs> I think it's about Judah and Jerusalem. It will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And it will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations, and He will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Well, that tells you everything you want to know right there. Okay? That sets the table for everything else that follows with respect to the day of the Lord. This is a future event. This is a promise. A day is coming when this will be the reality on earth. It hasn't arrived yet, but it's on the way. And uh, it's, it's remarkable how uh, the, the, the God-hating anti-biblicists uh, want to visualize world peace, but they don't want to visualize it on God's terms. And they don't want Jesus Christ reigning on the throne of David in Jerusalem with sovereignty over the, uh, the Gentile nations. The ones that are placed in subjection that have to come and pay tribute. 
And all of that leads up to verse 4. All they want to do is disarm. <laughs> they want to hammer swords into plowshares. I'm saying, well, wait a minute, the king of glory is not on that throne yet. Let's, uh, let's keep some swords around. Okay? Uh, disarmament prior to Christ uh, and His glory is, uh, is, is crazy. And so, uh, okay, I get this. The mountain of the house, the Lord will be established. Got that. All the nations will stream to it. Got that. This is a future kingdom. And guess what? It's never going to end. Wow, I can look forward to that. All right. Well, it's going to take some judgment, though, to get them there. And that's uh, described in these verses. So in verse 5, it's come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And because uh, if you're not walking in the light, we've got a problem. <laughs> and that's what it says in verse 6 and following. Uh, man, they're walking in darkness. They're, they're following idolatry. They're doing all this stuff. And so uh, they need to, to repent at, uh, for the uh, inauguration of this kingdom. That's why, uh, what was John the Baptist's big message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, this is a kingdom of light and we're walking in darkness. We got a problem. <laughs> if the kingdom's at hand, we're not ready for it. And that repent message to Israel is, is vital. So um, there's going to be judgment and it's going to produce humility. And uh, in verse 9 we see the common man has been humbled, the man of importance has been humbled. Uh, it says enter the rock and hide in the dust. That's a theme in the, in the tribulation over and over again. Humanity is going to turn into uh, you know, tunnelers. Uh, human mold. They're going to dig deep. They're going to get as deep as they can to hide. And uh, good luck with that because God knows right where they are. And um, but they're hiding from the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. See, terrible used to mean majestically glorious, and um, that's what it is—the splendor of His majesty. The proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. He is God the Father, celebrity of the universe, and He tolerates no other. Then verse 12, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. And this is what begins this description of the day of the Lord. It is God humbling the proud on a global scale, starting with the Jewish nation, but all the Gentile nations as well. Pride has to be cast down. And that's what this is. Verse 17, the pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And uh, like I say, this is the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's called the day of reckoning, it's called the day of the Lord, it's called the day of wrath, and sometimes it's just simply called that day. If we're talking about that day, in an Old Testament context, for Israel's application, that day is the day of the Lord. Okay, Our that day is rapture. Our that day is judgment seat of Christ. We want to be clear on that. I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that He is able to keep that which I have entrusted unto Him against that day. Rapture and, second, rapture and, and judgment seat of Christ. Not day of the Lord. Okay, Israel has their end times. The church has our end times. Big difference. All right. 
Again, uh, idols will vanish. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Um, men will go into caves and hide and men will cast away to the moles and the bats. Um, you know, while you're hiding away in the deep tunnels you've dug for yourself, just go ahead and leave your idols there. The moles and the bats can keep them. Um, yeah. And so um, that's Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, Isaiah 13, verse 6 and verse 9. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Wail, that's an order. Why aren't you wailing yet? <laughs> okay. Well, because you're not Israel and you're not afraid of the day of the Lord, right? We are delivered from the wrath to come. But Israel is commanded to wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pain and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Like, what is this strange thing? Well, hello. It's been written for thousands of years. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Is that what we're looking forward to? Is this what Paul had in mind when he said, I am persuaded that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the great and terrible day of the Lord? Or until the day of Christ? All right? That's our perfection. That's our completion. That's our end of life evaluation. That's for the body of Christ, for the church. It is an entirely different animal than what we're looking at here. This is, this is wrath and, and, and uh, this, is, uh, this is not something to look forward to. All right, um, and there's more. <laughs> this is when humanity gets put on the endangered species list. In um, verse 12, I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and uh, mankind than the gold of Ophrah. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place. It's the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. That's not the day of Christ. That's not the day of confidence for full reward. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Uh, Isaiah 34 and verse 8. The, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Okay, and here's the sword of the Lord and the um, host of heaven wearing away, the, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, their host also will wither away. My sword is satiated in heaven. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats. That's, that's, that's Armageddon, folks. That's the battle of Armageddon. That's the, the, the war of tribulation. That has nothing to do with the judgment seat of Christ or you and I getting raptured or the victorious conclusion to the church age. All right, Jeremiah 46.10. It's good to know these. Good to just have them. Know, know where to find them. Know where you can turn a page to show a skeptic and say, you know, does that sound like uh, the rapture? Does that sound like the judgment seat of Christ? Does that sound like a believer in the church age being rewarded because the Father complete, perfected His work in the body of Christ? Jeremiah 46.10 for that day belongs to the Lord God of hosts. It's Yahweh Elohim, uh, Yahweh Tzavayoth. 
a day of vengeance as to avenge himself on his foes. And the sword will devour and be satiated and drink its fill of their blood. For there will be a slaughter for the Lord of God of hosts in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. Nope, I don't see church age there either. Okay. Ezekiel 13.5. Had a hankering to get back into Ezekiel lately. I think Jeremiah and Isaiah and Jeremiah have gotten to me. But no, we started Hebrews, so too late. I won't go to Ezekiel anytime soon. But still, I got a fondness for Ezekiel. Uh, 13.8. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Not 13.8, 13.5. Uh, verse 4 says, O Israel. Yeah, there's a rebuke unto these foolish prophets. Verse 3, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. So there's day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, The Lord declares, when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. You know, you stand forth with a brave prophecy, but since God didn't send it and you just made it up, then all you can do is cross your fingers and hope for the best (laughs) and say, well, I said it. I hope it comes true. (laughs) Not how God works. That's not how a legitimate prophet should be operating. Ezekiel 30 and verse 3. The day is near. Again, the command is wail. Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, wail, alas, for the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Nothing at all to do with he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. All right. Uh, Joel, man, Joel, the whole book is about the day of the Lord, isn't it? By the way, I think Joel is early, not late. And I think um, he wasn't stealing from all these other prophets. I think all those other prophets stole from Joel. And um, the evidence that, uh, see, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, the, uh, the idea that Joel borrowed from all these other prophets. Um, and so by definition, he must be late because he borrowed from all those other prophets. Well, Turn it around. Joel must be early because all those other prophets borrowed from him. Okay? That makes more sense. All right. And by the way, Joel tells you to turn it around and beat your uh, plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. He says, we got battle in front of us. And yet those verses don't end up on bumper stickers. We should. We should market our own bumper stickers and Maybe we could make enough money to buy student housing or something. Um, Joel one fifteen, Alas for the day. Now notice, consecrate a fast. That's verse 14. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders. All of this is Israel. And the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. A solemn assembly for Israel. This is their duty. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And uh, it goes downhill from there, okay? 
That's Joel 1.15. Joel 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. All right? There's been nothing like it, nor will there ever be again to all generations. Verse 11 and verse 31 here in chapter 2. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? We don't have to endure the day of Christ. We're looking forward to the day of Christ. That He who began a good work in us is going to perfect it until the day of Christ. And we're going to stand before Him with full reward. All right. Um, down to verse uh, 31. By the way, this is where because this wrath is coming, they need to repent. Verse 12 says, yet even now, see verse 11 says, who can endure it? Verse 12 says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. That's why the, the nation of Israel has to repent during the tribulation to prepare for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Down to verse uh, 31. And by the way, on the way to verse 31, we've got other promises. But verse uh, 30 says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be those who escape. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Jerusalem surrounded, Antichrist and the armies of the world surrounding Jerusalem. And the Lord comes and he will rescue. Okay? By the way, this is the context. Tribulation, second advent. This is the context for that prophecy about pouring out the Spirit in verses 28 and 29. A spirit prophecy that applies to the second advent, not the church. This is the context for this. The day of Pentecost, the start of the church, did not fulfill these verses in Joel 2, 28 and 29. I think Peter's sermon in Acts 2 gets so abused. And that's unfortunate. Finally, uh, Joel 3. Joel 3, verse 9 says, uh, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused to come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And so we have the context here. It's, we got war in front of us, not, uh, not peace. Israel has war in front of them. Verse 14, um, or verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. And if you want to find a parallel in Revelation 14, there's the Lord with His great sickle and He's reaching down from heaven and He's reaping the harvest upon the earth. Judgment upon this world's idolatry. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision.
So there it is. All right. So uh, all of this has a purpose. All of this has an objective. It's to humble Israel. You will know that I am the Lord your God. You see that in 3.17? Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my mountain, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. See, the purpose for the great and terrible day of the Lord is preparing Israel for the coming kingdom. It humbles them. It sparks their repentance. It judges the nations. It judges global idolatry. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the church in any respect. In fact, that's why the church has to be removed from the world so God can resume His plan for, the, for Israel and for the Gentile nations. All right. Um, are you convinced yet? How about Amos? Amos was famous. Amos 5, verses 18 and 20. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, are you longing for it? For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Don't you hate that? You know? You run from the lion and the bear gets you. Um, or you, you go home and you escape the lion and you escape the bear. Whew, and you lean against a wall and a snake bites you. Okay? Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? That's the day of the Lord. Not the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, From Amos we go to Obadiah, Obadiah 15, and then Zephaniah, then Zechariah, then Malachi. Whoever reads Obadiah anyway. Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations... As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. God's wrath to the Jews, God's wrath to the Gentiles for how they abuse the Jews. And it comes back in the compound discipline that the Lord administers. See, again, it's just by definition. The church is not neither Jew nor Gentile. We are a heavenly nation. We are not an earthly nation. The day of the Lord is His wrath upon all the earthly nations. That's why we have to be removed before God can resume His plan and program for Israel and the Gentile nations. All right, well, good place to stop. We'll pick up on this Wednesday night. We still got to cover Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. The New Testament also, by the way, references the day of the Lord. And when it does so, it promises us over and over and over again, that's a day we don't have to look for. We won't be here to see it. And then we'll talk about the day of Christ with uh, the positive anticipation of being face-to-face with Jesus Christ. That's something we do look forward to. And we're not worried about lions, we're not worried about bears, we're not worried about a snake biting us against a wall. The day of Christ is something to look forward to and uh, not to run away from. So we'll deal with that as well. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for Philippians. And I'm looking forward, Father, to seeing the, the great fruit that's done. You've begun a good work. You will perfect it. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.